working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Working Drummer. I'm Zach Albetta, and my conversation today is with Marlon Patton. In the months leading up to my move to Atlanta, uh, I was doing research on the drummers in the area here, and from what I saw on Facebook and YouTube and and his website, uh, Marlon seemed to just be everywhere doing everything. Uh, And having been here a while, I can tell you that is 100% true. Marlon is involved in a huge array of projects using an equally huge skill set. He's constantly playing live shows across many genres. He does all kinds of different recording projects, both as drummer and engineer, both in his home studio and commercial studios. And he strikes a great balance between the work he does around Atlanta and the work he does on the road. Keep those hashtags coming on uh, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. It's great to see what everybody's up to out there. Of course, we love seeing pics of your drums or videos of your playing, uh, but we've also seen some cool posts about weird or funny stuff that happens on gigs, the commute, the load-in, the crazy people you encounter, whatever. It's all part of our working drummer life. So again, post using the hashtag working drummer and we'll be reposting. So here we go with Marlon Patton. Hope you dig it. So there's a lot to talk about with you, but I just want to start with where where we are right now and your home studio and and how came to be okay um well i mean i i started recording uh a really long time ago as just kind of a a way to get my own ideas down and stuff like that Mm -hmm. um and i guess over the years it just became like in all the bands i was with i became kind of the guy that did the demos and like you know i had the space to uh to record everybody and just like year after year, I just kind of started collecting more and more gear and stuff like that. And then, um, found this house. We're in Tucker, Georgia, which is like suburb of Atlanta, uh, found this house and saw that there was a window conveniently looking into a room that would be a great drum room. And, um, just started like envisioning the whole, the whole setup of the place. Um, and like just, you know, year after year, like invest a little bit in gear here, buy some new mics, buy some new preamps and stuff like that. And um, finally, it's gotten to this place where it's like taking over the house. Right. Much. <laughs> right. And, and so like when you walk into a place like this, it it seems like a, a daunting task to get it to this point from like if you're starting from scratch. Yeah. Because you you had to build stuff in there. Mm-hmm. You had to buy a bunch of gear. You had to outfit you know the sound treatment and Mm -hmm. and all that so like what were the what were the first steps you took um i think the first steps would probably just be like putting up some sound uh sound deadening treatment and stuff like that um but i mean i've been here for 11 years now so like at first it was just like one room you know everybody get in one room right you know, screw bleed, just everything, all the mics are bleeding into each other and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and you know, I'd have people over and we'd, we'd work on stuff and we'd, we'd write in here. Um, but I guess the first big construction project, I separated, uh, the, the drum room from a, from a, another ISO room and then built a vocal booth. So that was some actual, like, you know, swinging hammers. Kind right of, kind of stuff and you were doing the swinging and i was doing the swinging wow. yeah well me and a buddy of mine daniel clay um 
did uh, actually in trade for some studio time. He helped oh, me nice. build a wall. Yeah, <laughs> helped me build a wall with a with a sliding glass door in it. But um, you did it. You built a wall and you made somebody else pay for it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it can be done. It can be done. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I'm trying to think what like you know gear like the good preamps are so expensive that I'm just I. I guess like the disadvantage and the advantage of it is I can only afford one little piece of gear at a time. You know what I mean? Right. So I get this one piece of gear and I really like tweak it and learn it and, and get another piece of gear. And I mean, this is, this is definitely 10 years of collecting and, and, uh, and stuff like that. And uh, well, that, that sounds like kind of a blessing and a curse. Like if, mm-hmm. if you can't afford to get everything you want all at once, right. You got to really learn how to work with what you got. Exactly. And, and master it and see what it can do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, what were uh, what were like the first what were the first big purchases? Um, let's see. The first big purchases were probably like like the lunchbox and some API preamps, mm-hmm. um, and you know those are like seven fifty a pop or something like that. So I was starting to starting to really sink some at, at the time some very serious cash. Yeah, into it, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and you know, then I bought some pretty, pretty substantial, you know, some kind of industry standard microphones that are, that are fairly up there. Which are what? Um, like a, like some cool ribbon mics, like a, like a Coles, uh, ribbon. And, um, I bought a Neumann U87 for mm-hmm. vocals, which is mm-hmm. kind of the, you know, you right. hear it and you're like, oh yeah, I get it. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the sound I've heard on every recording you right. know, for a hundred thousand years, actually more like 50 years. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I guess the biggest purchase I've ever made on an instrument would be that piano you just saw, right. which was, which was pretty recent, but it's an awesome Yamaha grand piano. Yeah. That's a hell of a thing for, especially a home studio, I think to have a, a grand piano I know. in its own room. Barely fits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it sounds great in there, and people love the piano. I was telling you earlier that it's, like, the most expensive instrument I own, and I suck at piano. <laughs> but people that come and play it, I mean, I just love hearing, you know, great piano players on it. Yeah. And, uh, like, most of the piano players in Atlanta have recorded on it right. at some point or another. Right. So, so drums is obviously your your primary instrument, but yeah. what, what else do you play, and, and to what extent of seriousness do uh, <laughs> the other instruments um, come in? Well, I... You know, I am a, I do play bass. Mm-hmm. I actually had a gig on bass last night. Oh, cool! On upright bass, and uh, I play electric bass, and and I I really enjoy playing bass, and and I do work with some producers that um just come over and get me to kind of just say here play some stuff, you know, and I'll play drums and I'll 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 track drums on a track, maybe track some percussion, and then go over with some electric bass and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um. So, I mean, I'd say that was, that would be my secondary, secondary instrument that I actually do gig on and stuff like that. I could pick out some stuff on guitar and, yeah. and know some chords and stuff, but, um, but, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't dare gig <laughs> on the guitar. There's plenty of amazing guitar players. There's plenty of amazing bass players too. I, I, if I get a call for bass, I'm like, wow, <laughs> the cats are working. Right. <laughs> cool. Um, so in, in addition to, um, you know, amassing all the gear and outfitting the actual structure of the room, mm-hmm. you've had to uh, master all these skills in order to run this studio. So 
when when did uh, your your interest and your your education in engineering and that side of things begin? Man, I've always been super interested. Every time I've done gone into another studio, a commercial space, or something to do a session, uh-huh. I've just always geeked out on the littlest things. You know, just like the the placement of the diffusers and like how you know, like the just the placement of the microphones and drum miking and, and just like hearing what it sounds like in the control room versus hearing what it sounds like behind the kit. Mm-hmm. All that kind of stuff is just, re- I've just really geeked out on that. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm pro- probably kind of annoying in my early twenties <laughs> or something, you know, just like asking engineers too many questions and being like, <clears throat> okay, you know, let me do my job. Now. Right. <laughs> right. Listen just go play. Will you please? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I mean I guess I guess I've always been really interested in that side of things. Um, and so in addition to like pestering engineers and what you're you're pretty much self-taught as far as that goes. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Man. And so in what ways have you found that cuz like when you run your own studio, you're worrying about drum selection, drum tuning and sound manipulation, mic placement, um, and then, you know, behind the glass editing all the computer shit, the pro tools, all that. Right. So in, in what ways have you found that, that all of those skills sort of converge? Um, well, I think with drum sounds and stuff like that, I can think ahead a little bit, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. I can, I can, I'm more familiar with the way a drum is going to translate in a track. Mm-hmm. I feel like, um, and then also like when I'm doing my own drum, uh, tracking, I'm just I'm I'm kind of hyper aware of every kind of part I've done and every fill I've done. So like you know when I do take after take after take, I'm like, well, I haven't done this kind of fill yet here, so that'd be cool to edit from in this particular moment or something like that. Maybe I'll maybe I'll do something drastically different on this bridge, and I can pull the bridge out and put it in take two. Or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I'm like kind of trying to try to stay aware of um, of you know giving myself options to edit from, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, you are involved in all sorts of different projects and all sorts of different genres. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything about recording drums and, and capturing drum sound that you've found to be universal, regardless of genre? Um, I'm trying to think here. I mean, honestly, the, I, I do record a lot of like straight ahead jazz here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the piano and, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And that kind of sound is a little bit more, I guess, I don't, I don't want to say purist, but you're just kind of capturing the sound of the drums. You right. know what I mean? You're right. just getting a straight, like, pristine kind of drum kit sound. Mm-hmm. And you want, you know, you want the <clears throat> definition from the cymbals and, and you want to, like, just capture what it sounds, what things sound like in the room. And I feel like with more aggressive music or, you know, recording rock and stuff, you, you want a little more, like, compression and you want a little bit more of, what you feel like in a, in a venue, like mm-hmm. a live show, like the, the, the feeling of things pumping and, and speakers moving and, yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. So I, I wouldn't say that the, that is totally universal, except for the fact that you just, you just want to, you know, capture what's in the room. You know? Right. Yeah. Right. And you don't want to have to screw with it after the fact, like as much as possible, you want to get the sound you want coming off the drums yeah. from, from the get go. Yeah, exactly. And whether that be like rock music too. I mean, I feel like 
like to feel the energy of a compressor pumping in the headphone mix is yeah. kind of cool. You right. know what I mean? So like, why not, you know, you can, you can go ahead and do it while you're tracking. Yeah. You're going to probably crush it later. Right. In the mix. Why not do it? You know what I mean? <laughs> do it with some cool outboard gear. Yeah. I, I want more compressors by the way. That's the next, that's the next thing. Yeah. <laughs> right. I remember when I, when I first started recording, um, it was like in college where you, you know, you go to the, the school studio and just mm-hmm. record your little combo or whatever. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to hear what, you know, the studio or the engineer made my drums sound like. Right. And I didn't worry too much about what they actually sounded like. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I mean, it, it goes to show kind of what a novice I was and how naive I was because, you know, I didn't worry too much about the tuning. I didn't worry too much about the room. I was like, oh, they're going to make it sound awesome. Right. And But when I listened back to it, it was like, no, they just made them sound how they sounded. Right. <laughs> kind of yeah. up to me. To <laughs> I feel like I've made that mistake a couple of times, too, in, in trusting that something was going to be fixed or, right. or something was going to be, you know, uh, like even like tweaked with. I, I, <laughs> I was doing this uh, jazz record like a, many years back. And he wanted this little triangle overdub thing. Uh-huh. And I just like to signal that I, that the, like, it was only through the head and the signal that the head was over. I just did this little like cheesy, like, tick, 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 you know, kind of thing on the triangle. And it's in, it's on, it's on the record. <laughs> I was like, really? I just thought I was serious. <laughs> yeah. That was a lesson. Oh. <laughs> Cause I look like an idiot. Right. <laughs> You mentioned that when you started recording, you would be geeking out with the engineer and trying to learn as much as you can. Like, what's what's your approach when you're in someone else's studio now? Now I try to kind of stay out of the way, and, <laughs> and you know, I I really enjoy being in other studios. I mean, I mean, I enjoy tracking here too, but uh, when I track here, I, I really have to like take the time to get everything set. Um. I guess before I can sit down behind the kit and like try to be creative, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if I'm running cables, running mics and doing all that and then sitting down and okay, it's time to play now. Like it, <laughs> I can't do that. So it's great to like go to another studio and, and, uh, and have that ready for you to just sit down. And, and I, I just, I just really focus on, you know, I'll ask the engineer, you know, like what this, how the snare is translating and, and, uh, you know, if he has any suggestions or stuff like that, but I, I think I typically try to be just respectful and quiet and, Mm-hmm. Do do my job. Yeah, yeah. You know? Is is there ever a time where you're like, oh, I'm stealing that idea, or on the other side, like this guy really doesn't know what he's doing, but I'm just gonna shut up about it. Yeah, there's been well, you know, being in Atlanta, there's there's been a couple sessions where you can tell like a lion's share of what they do is vocals. Mm-hmm. Like it's you know it's kind of a hip hop right um, hip hop town, so it's like they're they can fly on vocal editing and, and auto tune and all this stuff is just like, Whoa, like this just looks like they're typing a dissertation or something, <laughs> you know, but then, you know, they'll be they'll, asking me what mics to put on the drums and things like that. Or like maybe having a, having a 57 pointed straight down in a snare, like mm-hmm. it's a needle on a record or something. And you're like, um, I'm going to, I'm just going to adjust this a little bit for you guys. Right. But that's only half that. That's very, very rare. Um, I'd say for the most part, I, I, I try to learn from, from whoever you mm-hmm. know, in that, in that capacity. Cause I don't I mean, I don't consider myself an engineer first by any means at all. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, your, your, your house tells a different story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you grew up around here. Decatur. Decatur. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. 
And did you go to Georgia State? I didn't. I went to University of Georgia in Athens. Okay. Yeah. So talk about that program. What did you study there? Um, I mean, it's a it's a public school, public college without much of a jazz school. But uh-huh. uh, I was lucky enough to have some some really good drum instructors, and uh, and Steve Dance was over there. He's a um, he's he's in Atlanta now, pianist, uh, jazz band director. Mm-hmm. I learned a, a ton from him. I mean, he was he he was pretty influential and a great guy. Um, and then I. I took from a drummer named Arvin Scott, mm-hmm. who taught me a lot about the uh, the Alan Dawson method. He's, he he kind of started me on that whole thing, and uh, and got started on on New Breed. If yeah, you're familiar with that book? Yeah, yeah. I, I swear I worked on New Breed one and two for probably about fifteen years or something. I don't know. Wow, it's just like just like consistent. You know, right. you can, that, like that. That's one of those books that you, I could just keep working on the rest of my life. Yeah, and pull my hair out doing it, but. uh <laughs> But yeah, I mean, um, and then uh, Dr. McCutcheon was the was the head of the percussion department, and he really respected jazz and and plays drum kit as mm-hmm. well. Um, his specialty is more mallets and mallet percussion and stuff like that. But he had a, he has a deep respect for drum set, which was not found amongst the other departments. I would I would say I was gonna say, in, in I think that's kind of uncommon uh, in mm-hmm. in percussion departments because I think a lot of classical percussion professors you know they'll they'll suffer drum set yeah exactly <laughs> you know which uh, i've never understood because like the amount of sp- the spots for work right the drum set player like just multiple of the spots for classical percussion yeah but, yeah and i mean i'm not dissing classical percussion that stuff is amazing there's i, I can't play with that level of perfection ever right. you know right it's like right I don't know. I, um, I just feel like why not teach your students something that they can apply? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this is college, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gonna, yeah. Um, well, it was cool what you mentioned about what was the, your your jazz director's name? Uh, Steve Dance. Cool. Yeah. yeah. It, I I had kind of the same experience uh, in the multiple colleges I went to. I, mm-hmm. I learned as much, if not more, about just playing jazz drums from the directors mm-hmm. of those bands as I did from the people I was taking private lessons with because the the directors are going to tell you like what the band needs right you, you know your private drum instructor will approach it from from the drummer's standpoint yeah and you'll you'll get into the you know the real inside baseball of, of jazz drums and coordination and the styles and all mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. but I think the 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 directors kind of kept me focused on the big picture like yep. I don't care what Phil you want to do here Here's what the band needs. Mm-hmm. Um, so, mm-hmm. what were what were some of the the lessons that you you took from that? Um, well, I think you know Steve was a, a combo director and director of the big band, and there was there was a, a particular moment where I just basically walked out of uh, of the end of that class with my head with my tail tucked between my legs and my head down, as he just came over and he put a metronome on my stand. Just dropped it on the stand like a mic drop. Like, you know, here you go, clank. Yeah, <laughs> and I, you know, I learned a lot about that about how you know in big band, big band used to freak the shit out of me, man. Yeah, like it's just such a huge chair. Right. You know, it's just such a huge responsibility. Yeah, and like I, I, I couldn't get the idea that you had to really push forward because that many horns are going to be a, it just drags. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's just you have to like be a freaking freight train, mm-hmm. or whatever. And I, I, I've always been like a re, kind of reactionary kind of player. You right. know what I mean? Like if 
the bass player is going behind the beat, I'm like, well, what's going on? I guess, am I rushing? I kind of think, like, yeah. I, I, I question myself a lot yeah. and stuff like that. You can't do that in big band. You just you have to be I mean? a dick. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, it's like, here's the beat, right. motherfucker. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I, it took me a, a while to really figure that out. And I'm still off. I mean, I'm, I act like I have it figured out. I don't. I, but I do love, like, Big band gigs are fun now. Yeah, for me finally. Yeah, yeah. You know, once you learn, once you learn how to how to touch them just right. Yeah, it's like it's kind of like Caesar. Uh-huh. You know, like with the dogs. If you he's not he's not yelling and screaming at them. Right. It's just if you do this little thing, all of a sudden the band falls mm-hmm. in line. And mm-hmm. it's not always about playing loud. Like no, it's a lot. A lot of times, if the band isn't lining up, or if you know if they're dragging or whatever. For, for the longest time, you know, my instinct, and I think most people's instinct, is to play louder. Like mm-hmm. you said, here's the beat, motherfuckers. But yeah. if, like, I, I just started dropping the volume. Mm-hmm. Like, if I play quieter than they're playing and they can't hear me, yeah. all of a sudden, everybody's listening for the drummer. Like, oh shit, where'd he go? Right, right. Um, no, I totally agree. And I also just play quarter notes on the ride. Right. I really like that. I, mean, yeah. I feel like when you do that, all of a sudden the band's like, oh, there it is. Right. Like, you don't have to do a bunch of, like, a busy ride, like, jazz ride pattern. That's a perfect like example of, like, the, you know, the jazz director versus the drum lesson. Because right. in the drum lesson, you study Tony and you study Elvin and, and mm-hmm. all that really super syncopated yeah. jazz ride stuff. Those guys are not playing with big bands. It doesn't work in the big band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what kind of a town is Athens? That, that has quite a storied... Uh, Man, Athens is great. I mean, you know, there's the REM and B-52s and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And But there's more bands per capita in Athens than I think anywhere else in the in the country. Ugh. So oh, God. <laughs> Ugh. I mean, that's... <laughs> I'm so cynical. That's yeah. something to be celebrated, you know? But when, yeah. I, when I think about it, I just think of all these bands, like, right. you know, biting each other on the back for gigs. And, and Yeah, there's, you know, and there's, there's a lot of venues for such a small town. And it's not small. I mean, you know, the, the freaking university itself has, I think it's like 30,000 students. Right? I, I thought it was more than that. It I might mean, be it's like 50, it's 80. A, yeah. It's <laughs> a crazy. city state over there. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, there's a ton of musicians and, you know, I get, I have to say my education really also came from, from some of the guys over there. And, and, um, I got my first weekly jazz gig, uh, at a place called Foundry Park Inn with just this great bass player mentor, uh, Carl Lindbergh. And he, he took me on as like a 20 year old green kid yeah. for a weekly gig, you know? Yeah, yeah. And he, he'd been, he's, he was an Athens staple for, for many, many years. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, there's, there's so much I learned from, from just being able to gig and so many musicians around. And then, you know, I was in a hippie jam band and, and all that kind of stuff too. Right. So, <laughs> so what, what was the majority of your time spent in school? Like, what were you practicing? What were you studying? Um, I used to I used to go down to the practice rooms fairly frequently and just bang out. You know, I, I was working like I said, like you mean like drum stuff? Yeah, drums like drum set versus percussion. Like, yeah, I mean, I did. I had to do a, a fair amount of mallet work and stuff like that mm-hmm. but I'd just take a year and learn a piece kind of thing you know what I mean I was so bad at that I, I never understood how cats can like you know play with four mallets read music and watch a conduct like a, a director yeah. and just say how what how what yeah. your eyes going I don't understand mm-hmm. so I would just you know like I, my teachers knew that drum set was my thing and um but I had to do the other stuff so I, I did I did play some timpani I played some I, I 
practiced some vibraphone. Never mm-hmm. very good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, I learned a couple pretty intense marimba pieces. Yeah. Um, yeah, a lot of them are intense. <laughs> oh, intense, I know. Um, percussion ensemble, you know, I enjoyed, I enjoyed stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'm not a very good note reader. I, I'm, I'm a, I can read, I can read hits and rhythms and right. stuff like that, but, but notes are, notes escape me. Right. It was, it was the same with me. If I, you know, sitting down with a big band chart, no problem. Yeah. Learning a marimba piece, like I had to be in a room alone, just yeah. like really going slow and, and putting the pieces together yeah. one by one. Yeah. Especially the four mallet thing. Yeah. It was crazy. I couldn't even, I don't even remember the grip right now. No, I, I do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so when I talk to people, did, did you graduate? Did you get your degree? Mm-hmm. When I talk to people who went to college and went through a whole, whole program, I'm, I'm interested in, in their transition from academic life to professional life. Mm. And for, for some people it was like all academics and then jump into pro and for others it was gradual and mm-hmm. sort of, you know, as the academics are winding down, the pro is ramping up. And mm-hmm. so like, what was that transition like for you? I definitely had the uh, the well the more transitional thing as, yeah. as you're talking about. Um, Dr. McCutcheon, the, the head of the thing, he, he ran a uh, head of the percussion department. The head of the thing. <laughs> the head of the percussion department. He Is ran, that on the website? Yeah. Head Dr. Of the McCutcheon, thing. head of the thing. <laughs> D- DA. Um, <laughs> so he had a, a steel drum ensemble, oh, which cool. was pretty fun. Yeah. And uh, I played kit in that. And he would also he would gig with the steel drum ensemble. So he would get all of his students on these gigs and he would always call me for gigs and a bass player and get like maybe two pan players or something like that. And we'd play these private events and stuff like that. And he probably taught me more about like professional professionalism and gigging mm-hmm. than anyone because it, I mean, his thing was, you know, show up on time, wear what you're supposed to wear, like all this kind of practical stuff that you don't, that you just kind of learn over time right. or whatever. And I mean, it sounds obvious, but I mean, he would harp on those kind of things. Yeah. You know, that's more than half the battle. Right. And just like show up, wear the right shit. Have a cool ha- attitude. Have the right instruments. Yeah. And, you know, and how, how you actually play after that matters a lot less. If you get all that shit right, mm-hmm. you know, you can just play competently and yeah. you'll be fine. He was all about that kind of practical practicality yeah. to, to gigging and stuff like that. So I like those were probably my early like corporate gigs mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and then, you know, I would gig with guys like Carl and then uh, Trey Wright um, in town. So I, I was I was playing jazz gigs and I was doing some road work in college, just like, you know, traveling to Auburn and right. playing. Crashing on couches. Yeah, yeah stuff yeah. like that. Um, so I was doing that probably the last three or four years of getting my degree. Mm-hmm. The last four years of it. Because <laughs> it only took five and a half. But, uh, yeah, the last three years was, was definitely ramping up and up. And then I spent another year in Athens um, just, you know, freelancing and, and gigging and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I got involved in a couple studios and was doing some session work there. And when I moved to Atlanta, I, I got hooked up with a few people that were just kind of regular workhorse gigging folks. Right. You know, right? And was the plan always to move to Atlanta after college? Um, I don't know if that was always the plan. I mean, you know, I always, I always thought about New York and and L.A. Mm-hmm. places like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, the older I get, the more New York just kind of floats away into like 
you know, I got a, I got a yard. Yeah. <laughs> got a yard and a big dog. And a big dog. Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling where he is right now. I'm sure he'll make an appearance. I'm sure he will. Yeah. Um, and talk about L.A. because it, it seems like you're, uh, you're sort of fascinated with L.A. I know, I know, uh, you know, Aaron Sterling and Matt mm-hmm. Chamberlain are kind of guys that you oh yeah you hold in high regard. Absolutely. Um, how how much were you ever tempted to like really move to L.A. and, and well, you know, I have some family out there, so I spent a lot of time out there, mm-hmm. and um, I think I feel like I've always kind of romanticized L.A. Uh huh. It's easy to do. Yeah. Uh, like I don't know. I have this idea of like you know, Jim Keltner, Steve Gadd just going from session to session in a limo or something like that. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> I, I really, you know, I have that like seventies LA is kind of what I think of when I think of LA and like right. jingle sessions and everything, like thousands of sessions going on all the time. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's still a ton of session work, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, I listen to guys like Aaron Sterling and guys that are just so focused on the sounds of, of, of the drums. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's pretty inspiring. Um, and, uh, and the caliber of, of studio work out there, I'm sure, is is quite high. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, I, I've always, I, I really do love it. I mean, I think it's, I think it's a really cool place. Granted, I've only spent, you know, a month there at a time. Right. So. Right. Well, that's that's long enough to get a, a taste of it. Yeah. You know, spend a few days in traffic and. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no you know, the traffic moves over there, though. I will say. Well, this this is a debate that you and I have had before. Yeah. Uh, like the. The traffic, yeah, the traffic moves, um, but it it can happen at any time. Like yeah. we're we're getting off. We'll get back onto the drums in a second. Yeah. But for those of you considering, <laughs> if you want to hear about traffic move, patterns moving to LA, metropolitan areas, yeah, yeah, no, that like the the traffic usually moves there, but it can come up at any time. You can be driving home at two in the morning on a Tuesday, yeah, and just get slammed with like a mile of backup because of construction or because of an accident or whatever. Oh, that's I, crazy. I feel like in Atlanta, the, the traffic is insane at the times and, and in the places you expect it to be. Right. Um, right. So if anybody wants to weigh in on LA versus ATL, <laughs> yeah, go to the website. Here's Leo. Yeah. Hey Leo. Leo's my, uh, hundred pound. Great Pyrenees. Yeah. Well, this is a perfect opportunity to bring up uh, Weisshund. Yeah. So talk about that project. That is a duo project that uh, I have with my fellow collaborator and uber-talented guitar player, singer, Rick Lawler. Right. Um, so it's a duo yeah. in which I play drums and bass pedals, which is a thing that I yeah. think I've started I, maybe there might be another yeah, yeah. guy or two at, around doing it I don't know and for those of you wondering what this has to do with the dog Weisshund is German for white dog correct the band is named after Leo and the um, big white dog me and Rick do terrible German accents <laughs> at, uh, at rehearsal <laughs> where we're like oh, that's my Weisshund <laughs> <laughs> there he is yeah does not like this number maybe we should move on to the next <laughs> so we uh <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so yeah. Talk about talk about the bass pedal thing. Yeah, it's it's pretty fun, man, and it's something that came about because for some reason I, in my mid, you know, thirty two, thirty three years old, I decided to start taking taekwondo. Okay. 
something I kind of always want. I was always like, I did backyard karate, you know, when I was a kid. <laughs> I was like, man, I should really, I should try it. Yeah. Good workout, fun. Not the best thing if you're a drummer, maybe, that, you know, working nightly using right. his, all of his limbs. Uh-huh. So, uh, so I was doing some Taekwondo, uh, practicing on my own, not in the, in the dojo <laughs> and broke my left ankle, oh, shattered it. Like yeah. just, yeah. In a cast, you know, three months in a cast, crutches, all that kind of thing. Damn. And I'm, you know, I'm still, I kept gigging. It was my, so yeah, it was my left ankle. I gigged without a hi-hat, just kept it closed, mm-hmm. which by the way, I would say, I would recommend drummers try not using a hi-hat for a while. Really? Because, oh my God, I feel like it centered my beat more. I, I was always a, a left foot bouncer. Right. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, and me like, kind of relied on it. And and not playing with it was so scary at first. And I was playing, actually, the first gig I had back was two days after I broke my ankle. I'm still getting used to crutches and like. Still in pain, bro. Yeah, in pain. Ugh. And I had a show with a band called Larkin Poe opening up for the Indigo Girls wow. at, uh, at the Botanical Gardens. Uh-huh. And it was just thousands of people. And I'm up there trying to figure this set out, you right, know, right. with no left foot, you know. So I, I just kept a hi-hat on, on gigs, did stationary, closed hat, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I guess I just, over the course of, you know, three, four months, got used to used to playing and working with it and I also found out who my who my true friends were that would help me load mm. gear and unload yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know that's important yeah yeah so um, yeah crutches man you can't do anything oh god I mean you literally can't like I could only carry a stick bag I can't you know? imagine um, so when I got the facility of my foot back I'm rambling when I got the facility of my foot back I um, decided you know maybe I should try See what see what else I can do with it, and, uh-huh. and I had these these foot pedals that are you know it's from an organ, right? It's like the like an uh, octave C to C, right? Of, of just foot, organ foot pedals, and I connect that to a Moog uh, Minotaur synth and run that into a big old Ampeg SVT and, and play root notes and play bass lines with my left foot, mm-hmm. and uh, keep a closed hi hat on the right side where the uh, where the ride normally is, right? Ride on the left side, so it's a little bit reversed kind of thing, but. Um, but it works. I mean, it's a big, huge, full sound for for a duo. It is. You know? It's cool. And I yeah. was wondering what what made you guys want to keep it a duo mm-hmm. instead of just getting a bass player. Um, yeah. But it sounds like it sounds like the pedal thing came first. It did. And I yeah. See, yeah. And then Rick and I got together and we're like, we should try this. And and we basically stayed up all night on a whiskey fueled <laughs> jam. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, stayed up till four a.m. and and we're like, this is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> had that this is awesome, y'all. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, this is so good. <laughs> so we also, we had that feeling of like, you know, we're both we both play like kind of genre hop a bit and, and right. play around the, the jazz world and and play around rock gigs and with singer songwriters and stuff. So we both felt that feeling that we had early, like in the garage playing with our friends mm-hmm. kind of thing. So it, and we're both huge like. Bonham was my absolute first influence. Yeah. And like I, John Bonham does everything right, in my opinion. Yeah. And he's just the man. And I still like, when it, when a Zeppelin tune comes on now, I'm like, God, <laughs> why is that so good? Yeah. You know, like just so good. Yeah. And, you know, Hendrix was a huge thing for him. So we were like, kind of like getting back to our pre jazz training. Yeah. You know, just go for it mm-hmm. kind of attitude. And, uh, and I mean the the jazz of course plays in with our with our ability to say you know 
oh, let's do the bridge here. Let's go to this this change. Let's do that. You know. So I mean, we're we're still communicating with that knowledge, but it's just like kind of the attitude of pre education yeah in a way. You yeah know what i mean i get that I, I you know watching your videos and and listening to your stuff i i don't know how much you want to or don't want to be compared to the white stri- uh, not the white stripes the black keys mm-hmm. um but it, it reminded me of the black keys but but you know much more cleanly executed and more grown up <laughs> okay <laughs> musically cool um we, i mean yeah we love we love the, their production their you know what i mean like that that rawness of them i think is definitely what we're trying to capture right but like you said you you're also bringing kind of your whole jazz education and and the the years that you've been doing all these different things, you bring that experience mm-hmm. to that sort of raw genre, mm-hmm. and and it shows. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we're working on a record right now. When's that coming out? Uh, we're slated trying to trying to get it out by August. So. Cool. And you're recording that here? Yeah, recording it here. Um, we've had a we just finished a single that we should be trying to release pretty soon off the record, and uh, had had a guy named Tom Lewis in Athens mix it and master it and. Sounds pretty big. Sounds pretty big. <laughs> oh, we're excited, man. We just, we just been we just work together really well, and, and I feel like those are the kind of relationships you need to, you know, foster and, and focus. On. Yeah. It's like when you when when something just clicks with another person. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's how. That's and how Rick Rick clicks with everybody. He's just such right. a sweetheart and such a badass. That I know. I haven't Same met a single time. person that's like I don't really like Rick. Yeah. You see, <laughs> you see him walking down the street. And you're like, oh, hey, what's up, dude? And you see him with the guitar, and he's just all of a sudden transforms into this bad motherfucker. Yeah. Like, Whoa. Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, so a couple of the other uh, projects you're involved in are Kenosha Kid mm-hmm. and and the ATL Collective. Mm-hmm. Um, so just. Just hit those briefly. Yeah, yeah. So Kenosha Kid is fronted by uh, uh, Athens-based guitarist named Dan Nettles. And uh, Dan is just blazes his own path. And, I mean, he's... he. I believe he went to Berkeley and, you know, took a, did, went through a lot of the sort of educational things that a lot of guitar players do, but he's he really does his, his own thing and, and writes instrumental music. Right, Kenosha Kid is instrumental. Kenosha Kid is instrumental. Vice Hunt is song, like does Rick write those songs? Uh, yeah, we we kind of we collaborate on the music and he writes the lyrics. Okay, yeah, yeah. So yeah, Vice Hunt is uh, is with vocals and Kenosha Kid is instrumental, but like it's like indie rock jazz. Uh, mm-hmm. I would say like we it's very it's very focused on like groove and and melody. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, and and Dan does these really amazing soundscape. Uh, his pedal board is really cool mm-hmm. and he's like really really geeks out on like sound pads soundscapes atmospheric stuff that he yeah. can just lay down and then play on, on the top of and stuff yeah. like that so it's, uh, a, it's a cool vibe because like from from what i've heard it it's not it's not really licks based right the way a lot of that instrumental sort of jazz i i guess it's some type of fusion if you want to call it, it is, that. yeah but, it is um but it yeah it's not it's not like yeah, here's how many notes we can we can do. Right. Whatever. It's just like you're you're like you said, trying to create sort of certain atmospheres, mm-hmm. certain soundscapes, and just kind of live in them. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and Robbie plays bass with that. Robbie Hanley. Mm-hmm. And uh, he and I go way back playing together. We've known each other for for a long time now. Mm-hmm. Played on a lot of different sessions together. And Robbie is uh, Robbie's the man. He is. 
Maybe. You had a chance to play with him yet? Yeah, quite a few times. Awesome. Yeah. Robbie is the man. He's like one of the most creative bass players I've ever played with. He's a melodic bass player. He really is. Just yeah. like playing a church gig with that guy. Yeah. All of a sudden, it's so much fun, you know? Right. Like, because he, he comes up with really melodic bass lines that don't get in the way, that complement the songs and make, mm-hmm. them, make them something cooler than, than they would normally be. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like if other guys <clears throat> try to get up there and it just sounds busy, but with he, when he right. does it, it's just tasteful and, yep. and really nice. Nice. Totally. Yeah. Um, so he's he's one of the, the head honchos of the ATL Collective? Yes, he's the music director at ATL Collective. And what that is is a uh, is a, a group of people covering classic records, basically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it'll be a house band scenario where, you know, they'll have, you know, the guitar player, the drummer, and the bass player and keyboard player will kind of stay up there. And different songwriters will come on. Maybe three songwriters per record, and each one will do three songs off the record. So, yeah. um, we've done we've done a lot of cool records. Uh, I, I see some highlights for me would be we, we covered Graceland, yeah, which is just so fun. Um, one coming up is TLC's Crazy Sexy Cool. Oh wow, yeah, which is which should be pretty cool. That'll be over the summer. Uh, yeah, that'll be over the summer yeah. in June, and then um, also in July. Um, one I'm going to be a part of is Are You Experienced? Oh wow! Hendrix one and Rick, Rick is actually um, is actually doing that one. So holy shit! So we're gonna I'm, I'm gonna get my Mitch Mitchell on. Yeah, yeah, and and it, it's really fun because you kind of like all through all through your education, you know, you're you're trying to transcribe some jazz greats and you you know you're learning patterns like that. This is like a chance to really like how many times you transcribe Jim Gordon, you know, yeah. or or. Keltner or like guys like that that just play straight grooves and it's like it's really interesting to kind of get inside those records and I always try to make it a transcription project mm-hmm. you know where I just transcribe the record and I probably won't do that with Mitch <laughs> <laughs> yeah because half the time I'm not even sure if he repeats himself right once, you know yeah, I mean? yeah I mean he's he's playing jazz drums with totally a rock guitar player yep and that's the sound you know yeah um but it's really cool to get inside some of these like studio grace heads um, and just like hear their parts and, and what they do differently. Like the, like the little different things they might do on a chorus or a bridge or something yeah. like that. It's, it's cool. And it's always a mystery to me if like, if, if you come across something really cool like that, that you never noticed before that you wouldn't think to do in a million years, it's, it's always a mystery to me. Like, did, did they just come up with that naturally or was that something they sat down and, and really, uh, yeah, you know, really thought out, and in in either case, my mind is blown. <laughs> right, right. You know, one thing that a lot of these records, like these old seventies and seventies records, seem to have a ton of, and I feel like it's lost. Is the art of the like the hi hat open close thing. Mm-hmm. So cool and such a like a like a huge part of the groove. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? I've I've been listening to the same thing. I've been learning a bunch of these tunes for Atlanta Funk Society, uh-huh. um, and there's a ton of that stuff in there. Yeah. Um, on the way over here, I was listening to. Uh, you wouldn't think Atlanta Funk Society would play a Grateful Dead song, but they are. Yeah. Uh, they're doing uh, Scarlet Begonias. Cool. And so much of that little sixteenthy open hi hat shit, just mm-hmm. like all over it, man. Oh, it's so um, good, man. Yeah. I love that stuff. Yeah, and you can't just do the coordination. Like, there's a touch. Oh, to yeah. get that to feel right, yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, so, what's the when you're when you're tackling a record with uh, ATL Collective? You you said you've done some transcribing mm-hmm. for that, but is, is there? 
Are there records that you want to reinterpret and sort of rearrange? Well, that's that's the challenge. Is like sometimes you'll do all this work, and then the songwriter will say, "I want to do it like this." <laughs> you know, I, I'd like to do, I'd like to do it in a style of you know, like get out the mallets and a shaker, and, right. and let's completely reinterpret the song. And that's fine. I mean, then you have a like. Some of the records I've, I, you know, I didn't know half the songs on. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew the hits, mm-hmm. and then the other half of the songs are great. Right. You know, um, uh, so I mean, you're you're coming at it with a with an educated approach. Even you know, you do the work, and then you come in. Right. And th- those gigs are a lot of work because a lot of times we also do a set with the songwriter at the end of the night. Right. So you're learning a whole record. You're learning their stuff too. You're learning their stuff. Yeah. You're learning, yeah. So. It's but it, it's it's a great challenge. And I, I always try to take those gigs whenever I can. Yeah. It's it, I mean it's it's a lot of work, but I always feel like it's so worth it at the end. I'm just like man, because it's and it's also like a very communal vibe. Like, yeah, we did thr- that. we did Thriller um, Halloween, uh-huh. which is like another amazing record to learn. Right, the, the grooves are very static, mm-hmm. except for like one little thing will happen, one little thing will be added, or like mm-hmm. a clap will come in on the chorus, or like something. You're just like, God, it's brilliant. Yeah. It's a dance record. Right. You know? Yeah. It, but some of those grooves are just so bad. Barry Gordy. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I hear something cool on a Michael record, I'm like, man, fucking Barry Gordy. Yeah, right? Guitar <laughs> I mean, all that stuff is yeah. just beautiful. Um, but, I mean, that whole group, like, we, we walked away from it, like, um, just... Like, it was almost like summer camp or something mm. like that. You know what I mean? Like, everybody involved was like, oh, remember Thriller? <laughs> <laughs> seem to have a pretty good balance between uh staying home and working gigging around atlanta doing stuff in the studio and going out on the road Mm -hmm. so has that ever gotten out of balance do you have to be really conscious about how much road work you take and um i kind of do and um i mean i it's funny because when i'm doing too much of one thing i i notice it in my attitude Mm -hmm. like like i'm somebody that likes to kind of just do a ton of different things and genre hop and and be on the road some be home some but you know i I have i have a lot of things here that are really good and when i'm away for longer than two months i'm like man i gotta get home Mm -hmm. you know um but i i do i do i think i i have gotten to the point where i do consciously think about those kind of things Mm -hmm. um i was just out with a band called delta moon Mm -hmm. um for seven and a half weeks mm-hmm. in Europe. And it was a great tour. Attitudes were great the whole time, mm-hmm. but it was time to get home. Yeah. You know, time <laughs> to get back to my dog and, mm-hmm. and my, and, and my girl and my, my chickens, like <laughs> go back, edit that time to get back to my girl and my dog. <laughs> I'm not editing that. What about, what about your chickens? <laughs> And my chickens. <laughs> I got three out back. They're laying eggs right now. Yeah. Call me if you need some eggs. They're fresh, organic. Right. Yeah. You can still have that in New York. Yeah, that's know, true. On, on the, the roof. rooftop. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I do consciously think about it. And, and I do like going on the road. I mean, it is like, it's a it's something to do in the year that's like, I guess it's like a kind of a, a guidepost of a career kind of thing, you know. Right. Like, I'm, I'm hit. I'm hitting the road now. Yeah. I have my next two months planned out. Right. I got a thing I do every day. I got one job to do. Like in a way, it's it's very easy and hard at the same time. Mm-hmm. I would say because you know it's not like you're sightseeing out there. You know, you're you're right. in a vehicle. You're 
driving every day. You know, we were working six nights a week in, in March. Wow. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a lot of work, but at the same time, it's like you wake up and you know exactly what your day is going to be like yeah. pretty much. And when it's not like that, it's a little bit of a Zen thing where you roll with the punches and you, you can't complain, mm-hmm. you know, you just, you just go with how, with what happens. Cause you're like at the mercy of the road. Right. But when you're home, you're like, you wake up and you're like, okay, okay. I got all this stuff to do. I, I need to work on, I need to shed these tunes. I need to do this. Uh, I got to, you know, it's like, you, you don't, you don't exactly know what to do every day. Right. You know? So, yeah, yeah. So there's a little bit like, there's a little bit of a relief sometimes I feel like for being on the road. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause your job is spelled out. Mm-hmm. I play the drums. Tonight. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get in the van, I get out. Yeah. I play drums. In fact, there's, there's always a bit of a transition when I come home and I'm like bad at the calendar, you know, <laughs> and like stuff's going on where I'm like, Oh God. Uh, oh my God. I get tonight. Okay. Okay. How do I get my gear in my car? <laughs> <laughs> you know, things like that they're so stupid yeah you gotta get back in the rhythm yeah exactly yeah exactly so i mean do you have to like when you go on the road for you know a month or six weeks or something do you have to turn down a bunch of studio work here do you have to postpone clients do you i mean that's probably the hardest part is like i i the week or two or even month leading up to tour i'm ferociously trying to get projects finished mm. letting people know i'm gonna be gone um because the last thing I want to do is, is you know, everybody's project is the most important thing to them at mm-hmm. that moment, mm-hmm. as it should be. Yeah. I mean, it's like music is such a, I guess, like a um, abstract concept that it's just like all you have is your own drive in your head. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you just got to keep moving forward with it. And if it stalls, it's it's tough to mm-hmm. keep momentum. Yeah. So, like, I, I try to, like, not do that to anybody. And so, like. The few weeks leading up the tour are pretty stressful. I'm like, I'm trying to mix. I'm maybe putting drum tracks on people's stuff that I've promised. And, mm-hmm. and you know, just, just have a list of things that I'm trying to get done. So I'm not leaving anybody hanging. Man. Yeah. <laughs> it was it was down to the wire. It's it a good problem fun. to have, though. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is. I, I, and I'm not complaining. I'm busy. Yeah. And it's, it's beautiful. And then what about coming back from tour? Like, does it take a while to sort of fill up the schedule again after you're back? Do people... Because I, I know in L.A., like, if you disappear for any length of time, everybody forgets about you. Right. Um, just because it's so saturated and there's so many other people who they can turn to and whatever. Right. So do you, do you find that you have to kind of, like poke your head up and show your face when you get back into town a little bit, but, uh, just between us and your listeners, <laughs> a, a, uh, yeah. uh, I, I don't, Bo- both of them. Yeah. I, <laughs> hey mom, I don't, uh, I don't really tell anybody when I'm going on the road. Hmm. I just kind of, I mean, uh, friends know, and I'm sure it gets around, right, you know, right. but, uh, I, and I do post some pictures and things like that slowly and leak, leak some things out, but I'm, I'm just kind of like, when people call who aren't in my immediate circle and ask me if I'm, say, available on May 15th, I say, no, I'm not available on May 15th. And that's mm-hmm. the end of the story. You know, right. I feel like they don't need to know that I'm gone. Right. Or, you know, like, because people do. I, pe- oh, Leo's. <laughs> Leo. Leo's going to town. And I hope you can't hear that. Yeah. <laughs> that dog will bite you. <laughs> hey. Hey, buddy. <laughs> He's getting down on it, man. Oh. But that is the truth, man. If if you go out for for a long time, pe- people get that in their head that you're a guy that goes on on the road, right? And they, I think they'd probably just rather not put the call in because they just assume mm-hmm. you're going to be out on the road. Yeah. Know? So so I've been kind of careful to not 
pigeonhole myself as, as just somebody that's gone all the time. Yeah. You know, like I'll, I'll see people sometimes and they'll be like, how's the road been? I've been like, I haven't been on the road in a year. And they're like, Oh really? Oh. <laughs> it's like, you just have that kind of vibe or, or idea of you. And then mm-hmm. you know, think you're always gone or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned social media. You seem, you, you have a social media presence, but it seems pretty judicious and not, you know, a daily just onslaught of, oh, of posts from Marlon. Yeah. Um, how old are you? 36. 30, so I'm 35. Uh-huh. Um, and I was reading this article a couple weeks ago about how our generation is kind of the only one that that straddled the digital age. Like mm-hmm. we, we grew up in analog and mm-hmm. we kind of came of age in digital. So music, my point is musicians that are younger than us are pretty much reliably all over social media. Right. And a lot of musicians that are older than us aren't right at all. Right. Um, so how, how have you incorporated that into your, into your sort of musical existence and your business practice and your probably not well enough, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm working on some stuff, you know, I'm kind of constantly feels like I'm working on my website and and things like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do, you know, with vice hoon, we try to, we try to, take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Rick being younger than me <laughs> is better at it. Right. Um, but we, you know, we have Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff. And everything's linked together. And we try to, we try to try to use Facebook to promote, but it's, it's just really hard. Mm-hmm. There's so many bands out there and it's kind of like that, that conundrum of setting yourself apart and, and being different and not being annoying. Right. You know? So, um, but I guess me personally, I you know I, I post about gigs and stuff like that, and I, I feel like occasionally I'll get a few people out. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I really like to work on like I'm working now, kind of on having more videos up of just myself playing because mm-hmm. the world needs more drum videos. Absolutely, don't you think? Oh man, I've, <laughs> I'm just like searching YouTube for. The, you, can, you can barely find any. Where are all the drum videos? I know, especially Instagram. There's none. <laughs> 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 but uh, but I do love like the good quality ones like you know like we're talking about Aaron Sterling and Paul Mayberry's videos man if you ever check that guy out oh you showed me him the other Paul day Paul Mayberry is a bad man yeah Jesus I mean like the sounds and stuff he gets I just I just love the guys that are working with different stuff concert toms and and huge bass drums and right. weird stuff like right. they get far That's, out sounds I, I found that out about you quickly like you're you are just obsessed with sound you're not obsessed with drumming or coordination or licks or anything it's no. all about like the ears like what what kind of sound am i getting out of this thing? dude i will sit down sometimes to i'm making quote hands practice <laughs> and uh i will tune for an hour really yeah it's weird man i'll just like tune my drums and be like what is this you know like just really experiment and then i'll have to go and i'm like i didn't do anything (laughs) (laughs) i literally did nothing yeah but you know i mean i guess it's it's good for something well there was an interview michael carvin did for for drummers resource and he talked about how like if if you're really going to sit down and practice like you, you just have to set up a stool and a ride symbol and just practice your ride symbol. Right. Because as drummers, we'll just get distracted by everything else. Exactly. But it, I mean, from what you're saying, it sounds like that's not necessarily a bad thing. If you sit down to practice something and end up getting distracted and screwing around with tuning mm-hmm. after an hour, you might have like three or four new tricks right. in your bag to, to bust out tuning wise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Which is just as important. Like, you know, especially if you're on a session, like getting, Getting the right sound 
yeah for things or coming up with a unique sound i think is just as important as or like if 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 the engineer says i want the tom to go pew or or to ring or something and like have an old school like like a 60s rack tom sound that right. rings or something you yeah, know yeah it's good to know how to do that quickly uh-huh. you know and not waste everybody's time right you know I'm not sure if I know how to make the time go pew. Oh, you could figure it out. Yeah. That's your next hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get the uh, the pad out with a 808 Tom. <laughs> Put that on Instagram. There you go. Just me playing a right. Roland V drum. Hashtag pew. <laughs> you are good at social media. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks a lot for talking, man. Absolutely. Really cool. Best yeah, of luck fun. to you. Thank you. Really enjoyed that talk with Marlon. He's a guy who proves that it's possible to be deadly serious about what you do uh, and be extremely good at it while still being laid back and funny and humble and uh, not taking yourself too seriously. That's a guy you want on your project, no matter what your project is. Thanks to Marlon for talking with me, and thanks to my working drummer teammates, Matthew Kraus and Mike Jackson. Matt will be back next week with a very special interview with Nashville studio legend Eddie Bayers. Uh, We've been looking forward to this one for a long time, and we're really excited to bring it to you, so be sure and tune in for that. Leave us a rating and review on iTunes if you see fit. That's very helpful to us, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.